0: This is Autoline This Week, the show that gets you inside the global automotive industry. Autoline This Week partnered with the Consulate General of Canada in Detroit to produce this episode.
1: Hello and thanks for joining us on Autoline This Week. Today's discussion is all about electric cars, yet again, but from a different standpoint. Today, we're going to look at the legal issues that are coming in that maybe the auto industry hasn't faced before, or their suppliers, or even the electric utilities. And joining me for the conversation today include Jennifer Dukarski, an attorney with Butzel Long, the law firm. Also, we've got Sam Abilsamid, Associate Director at GuideHouse. Great having the two of you here to talk about this. And Jennifer, I'm gonna kick it off with a very simple question. Is it true? I mean, our electric cars going to bring a whole lot more legal issues the industry's never had to deal with before?
0: Well, I'll put it this way. I think it's going to bring a host of new legal issues that are similar but different than the ones we have today. And really, it roots itself in some of the complexity. What we have with EVs is a system that has the opportunity to interface with so many more technologies, whether you're plugging in at home, you're plugging in on the road. These types of connectivity issues and connecting with uh, outside sources is something that really we don't see unless we're plugging in um, to get a vehicle diagnostic done. So it's going to open up new avenues that way. But all the same, it's really complex technology that is just going to make the complexity ramp up at an exponential level.
2: Sam, how do you see it? Uh, I, I agree with Jennifer. Uh, you know, we've certainly got some some new technology issues that are going to have to be dealt with, um, such as you know the, the liability issues around batteries, uh, with particularly fires. Uh, we've seen some some real issues pop up recently with the Chevy Bolt, and and there's been issues with other vehicles as well. Uh, but I, I agree that. Um, some of the, I think where some of the new things are going to be are going to be around connectivity, um, especially when you get into areas um, like. Managing charging, uh, remote management of charging is going to be an interesting one. Uh, utilities obviously would like to get much more involved in that process of being able to turn on and off charging for people so that they can manage their, their, the load on the grid. Um, that may lead to some, some interesting issues for customers that suddenly find that, you know, they wake up in the morning and unplug their car and, and it hasn't been charged for whatever reason. Um, so there's... Uh, that complexity is going to play itself out in a, in a lot of different ways.
1: I think let's dive into battery fires with electric cars right now, because it's so much in the headlines, Jennifer, how do you evaluate this? You know, from a legal standpoint, you've got general motors blaming its supplier Its supplier doesn't want to blame its customer. And meanwhile, customers, I mean uh, you know, people who have bought the car, are being told, don't park it in your garage. It might burn your house down. Don't even park it within 50 feet of another vehicle. I I mean, this just seems to be an invitation to all kinds of lawsuits.
0: Well, as a consumer, I would absolutely hear that message. And depending on how sophisticated you are, you know, just the fear of I can't park my car in the garage. I can't park it near anything else. Where am I going to park? Down the street? What if I live in a big city? There's nowhere to park. I think that fear really creates a situation where we do have to be on our toes from consumers arguing either in the case of a fire where there is a lawsuit or even in kind of risking a a diminution of value that the vehicle itself is worth less than when they bought it just because of of those risks and the fact that you can't use it like you would a traditional vehicle. That being said, let's pivot for a second to to kind of the blame game and and uh, who is responsible. I think there's a big question there because really, it's not just the battery itself, it's not just the vehicle itself, but there is so much to the architecture that really understanding each individual issue, whether it's the the Chevy issue or any other battery issue, you really have to understand the full complexity of the architecture because when a supplier goes into a, a, a relationship with their customer, they don't always have all of the facts. And likewise, the OEMs, the, 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 the Ford, the GMs, they may not know everything either that's going on on the supply side. So really there's a lot of opportunity for improved communications and improved understanding, but it, it's one thing that it's really hard to blame one side or the other right off the tick without a lot of investigation.
1: Sam, how do you think this is going to be resolved between GM and LG Chem, which made the batteries that go into the Chevy Bolt that are causing these fires? GM says it's identified a couple of manufacturing defects, but even if it turns out this is all LG's fault, and GM hands it the bill, which it now says could be $1.8 billion, I mean, something like this could cripple a supplier. Uh, What do they do? I mean, do they have insurance, or how, how do they get around this, or do you even know?
2: Yeah, for a supplier like LG, they're part of a much larger conglomerate, the LG group, that is involved in a wide variety of businesses. So I don't think that LG specifically is going to be crippled by paying a five you know, $2 billion bill or up to $2 billion bill to replace these batteries. But… Um, for you know some other companies that certainly could be an issue, uh, you know I mean it's always been uh, or at least for a long time you know part of the the way the auto industry works is that if there is a defect that requires a recall or or some sort of warranty. Work Um, If it's a defect that was caused by an issue from the the supplier, supplier usually picks up a big chunk of that bill. In this case, following up on what Jennifer was saying about uh, complexity, there's more to it than just the cells. Yes, they seem to have identified a manufacturing issue with the cells, but um, there's also – Other aspects of this, you also have the design of the battery pack itself that the cells are integrated into. There's the battery management system that takes, that manages, uh, you know, the output from all the modules uh, within the pack and transferring power back and forth between the battery and the rest of the vehicle. And, you know, I, and Jennifer can probably answer this better than I can in terms of liability, uh, but it seems like you know there's there's the potential of uh, you know someone were to sue GM, you know. Is GM partly responsible because perhaps they didn't design a battery management system or they didn't design the pack in a way that it, it was resistant to these fires? Uh, so, yeah, LG may be the root cause because of the, the manufacturing defect of the cells, but there's a, lo- a lot of other pieces that may have potentially been able to mitigate the problem.
1: So, Jennifer, let's talk about that uh, culpability for liability. Uh, What do you think is going to happen between LG and General Motors? And what lessons can other automakers and battery suppliers take from this case?
0: Well, I think ultimately you're getting uh, into a situation where there's going to be a real difficult time establishing firmly the full, you know, perspective of what's, what's, what's to blame. As Sam mentioned, there are some issues that are potentially manufacturing related within the cells. How much of that truly contributed to the ultimate problem? Other issues, as Sam mentioned, with the architecture, um, you're dealing with a situation where there's likely a kind of a mutual culpability. There are are knowns, there are unknowns that that went into the design. So I, I think, naturally, GM is going to want LG to pick up as much as humanly possible. Likewise, LG really wants the full, uh, the full perspective to be understood that it isn't necessarily only these manufacturing defects that went into causing the issue. So likely you'll either end up in court or more likely probably some form of um, arbitration Um, really kind of a closed universe, which you'll find a lot of suppliers and and OEMs going into uh, to try to deal with these issues, hammer it out and find a resolution. So I I think you'll find um, what will likely happen is some form of arbitration. The number will be between zero and very big and uh, they'll end up, um, nobody will ever necessarily know because it most likely won't be public.
1: And are there lessons to be learned for others, or is this just stuff that happens when you make cars?
0: Well, I I think the answer is yes and yes. Um, first off, any manufacturing defect and things like that are just normal parts of, of the process. Understanding that things will happen, the supply chain has its limitations, um, responding to that in a very quick way, making sure that you're able to quickly isolate what vehicles could potentially have the issue. That's almost kind of normal block and tackle for the industry. Um, so kind of expanding beyond that, I think for anyone who's going into the EV market, those specifications couldn't be more critical. That and a full understanding of what the system architecture looks like, understanding battery management, understanding all of those things that Sam mentioned earlier. If you're a supplier, some level of transparency from uh, the customer side is going to be absolutely necessary to avoid some of these potential problems that have complex or really unknown root causes. Um, the more that you know, the more that you're able to understand the environment you're in, the better you'll be able to design. And worst case scenario, if something does go wrong, you'll be able to respond more quickly and limit the scope of the problem.
2: Okay. Yeah, one of the, the, thing, the things oh, that have uh, been done in the auto industry over the last several decades is implementing uh, quality processes uh, that the goal of that is to try to catch issues as early in the process as you can. And, and I mean, this actually, you know, goes back to the 1950s, you know, work of uh, J. Edward Stemming and uh, and others trying to catch th- those issues early on and address those. You don't want these things lingering in your process. the The challenge here with these cells has been that it's, It's such an infrequent occurrence, you know. uh, Even though, you know, in the case of the Bolt, I think we're talking right now about eight fires that have occurred in that fleet of one hundred and forty thousand vehicles, and you know, compared to the number of vehicle fires that happen with gasoline vehicles every year, the number in twenty eighteen it was two hundred and twelve thousand fires in the United States. Uh, So the 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 frequency is much less. So these problems are very difficult to find. But what they've got to do is figure out, you know, as you scale up production of these batteries and EVs, how are we going to test, how are we going to, what processes can we put in place to catch these things before they get out into the field uh, or before you have a large number of them out in the field and address that, you know, fix, fix the manufacturing process early on. Here in this case, This has apparently been happening since at least 2017, uh, and they've only now started to really figure out what's what's going on.
0: And, John, let me build off of that for a second from the legal side. Those documents, kind of the the, the the nuts and bolts of what we do in the industry, um, looking at the potential defect failure modes, looking at what we're doing to control those, our DFMEAs, PFMEAs, and control plans, those will absolutely be critical in any litigation or any arbitration that comes from any battery issue.
1: So in other words, you know, DFMA designed for uh, manufacturing and assembly, uh, if, if you have that process in... in- in place in your manufacturing operations and and your design operations,
0: that helps you in court? Absolutely, the more detailed, the more attention that you pay, um, the more thoughtfulness you are in looking at any of those potential failure modes, um, whether it's a design failure mode or an actual production failure mode, when you're looking for what could go wrong and you've identified things, the, honestly, the biggest fear is you've identified a potential root cause, a potential failure mode that could happen. You've identified it to be critical and you do absolutely nothing to fix it. So that's where some of the weakest links are, where court cases can be won and lost. So absolutely, I I, I I think that uh, when you look at it, the manufacturing engineers, the design engineers and the quality engineers are absolutely mission critical into making sure they do that right up front. And that can have major legal consequences later.
1: So in other words, if if you can show to the court, look, we tried everything to prevent this problem. It happened anyway. You're way better off than just saying it happened.
0: Well, in, in a product liability suit, you know, there's different tests in different states, but one of the tests really looks at um, alternative um, designs. And if you have no really reasonable alternative designs that you can implement, you know, if it if you could make it absolutely 100% safe, but it's going to cost a million dollars per vehicle, you know, that legally isn't necessarily a requirement. So identifying that you have tried different uh, design efforts Um, And at least, if nothing else, recognizing that you have found that potential defect and you have tried things either in the process or in the design to try to alleviate and avoid it, trying to mitigate it. That's really absolutely just so important from a legal perspective.
1: Wow. Great advice for any engineers or even managers who are watching this right now. Uh, Let's move beyond the batteries and the cars themselves to the charging infrastructure. Sam, what kind of legal pitfalls do you see as you know electric cars have to go and use a totally new fueling system
2: yeah i mean there's um, certainly going to be challenges with home charging infrastructure is is one case uh, with the installation process um, We need to make sure that things like building codes are followed and that the chargers are installed correctly by. Uh, licensed electricians, that sort of thing. Um, at the public charging level, uh, there, you know, there's always the potential. Especially when you move into DC fast charging, the more power you're putting into the vehicle, that increases the risk of things going wrong. And so, we need to make sure that uh, that those systems, those those uh, that charging infrastructure is safe, has been properly installed, it's controlled properly, uh, and and isn't overcharging the vehicles because that could cause, uh, damage. Uh, so there's, there's a wide variety of places, again, where things can potentially go wrong, uh, or, um, potentially, you know, uh, they could, you know, the, the, these systems could be sabotaged, uh, you know, vandalized, uh, that could cause some issues. Hopefully those sorts of things would be reasonably easy to detect and, uh, address, uh, but, uh, it's it's they're still, you know, these are all the time, you know, just as with the design of the vehicle, you have to consider all of the things that could potentially happen and take uh, all reasonable measures to to try and address uh, that and make sure that, it, that you mitigate it as much as you can.
1: We've got another issue here, too, Jennifer. My understanding is uh, uh, how utilities are regulated varies very much from state to state. And uh, right now, we've got public charging stations, which are buying electricity from the utilities, which are highly regulated. But I don't believe the, the retailers, the, the chargers, are are that regulated. Uh, is there potential issues here? Because I know, for example, uh, the charging stations, at least in, in this area, in Michigan, where we live, cannot even sell electricity by the kilowatt hour. They they sell it by a, a unit of time, let's say a half hour or something like that. What, what kind of legal issues do you see in the regulation of all
0: this? I mean, I just see a host of opportunity, to be honest with you. I, I look at it from the perspective that we have a blank slate and you're right. Right now, we just are in a position where there isn't that um, there's not a lot of of good policy at a local level or even at at a state to state level. So I think there's going to be a a big fight to try to step in to get that localized charging station level kind of retail level uh, regulation in place. But that's honestly also the potential for a lot of nightmare if we have states going on a state by state basis. You know, just imagine if you're if you're wanting to set up charging stations around the country and ohio has one set of regulations michigan has another set and dear goodness don't even talk about florida or hawaii <laughs> um they're completely different so the the fear of creating that patchwork is just one that i think is is um it's a frightening opportunity but there's still a lot of opportunity to step into that place because there's nothing there really is nothing there john
2: wow hey, john uh, just to to follow up on that one of the um interesting areas that, you know, referring to that patchwork, that um, where there's been an opportunity that we haven't been able to take advantage of yet is vehicle-to-grid integration. Uh, early on in the in the adoption of EVs in the latter part of the 2000s, uh, there was a lot of talk about doing uh, V2G, uh, but we haven't really been able to deploy it because of the fact that we've got something like 3,000 different utilities across the United States and all have different systems. There's, there's you know, there haven't been standards that, that's, that's something that's in process now, but there haven't been standards for how vehicles communicate back and forth and feed power back and forth to do that bi-directional charging. Um, and you know, that's another potential area where things can go wrong if you try to deploy a vehicle to grid integration And it doesn't work, you know, or if a utility is relying on a certain number of vehicles to be available to balance the grid, what happens if they're not there, if they don't get plugged in or they don't have enough charge in the batteries? So that's still more layers of complexity in this whole mess.
1: Yeah, Jennifer, Sam raises a really good uh, example there. Uh, As you know, there's demand charging. So, you know, if all of a sudden you start using a lot more electricity, your rates can go up. There's this managed charging that Sam's been talking about, not just putting electricity into the battery of a car, but taking the electricity from the battery, plugging it back into the grid to to Mm -hmm. help uh, manage this situation. Who's going to decide it? Is it going to be regulators or is it going to be the courts or is it going to be both?
0: You know, I I think long term, the answer is probably it's going to be both. Um, When you look historically at any type of kind of regulatory schemes, when we first kicked off our friends at NHTSA, they they tried to make a lot of rules right off the tap and a lot of those were shut down. So I, I see the same trend happening here. Um, We're going to have a lot of new regulation pushed at a local and possibly even some at a federal level to try to contain this. And immediately you're going to have pushback, whether it's pushback from the industry itself or it's pushback from consumer groups um, or even pushback from somebody who doesn't like the idea of contributing to the greater good by having some of their battery life taken back from them you know, you're going to have something happen. You're going to have a lot of litigation. So we're going to have a, a preliminary set of regs. We're going to have challenges. So I, I look forward to the the fact that these things are going to be unsettled for probably at least the next five to 10 years.
1: Wow, Sam, what's that do to EV adoption? It sounds like a lot of this uh, conversion to EVs is going to be
2: spent in court. Um Some of it will, Uh, you know, I think we're still so very early in the adoption curve that, you know, the, the, The impact on you know the the all the drivers out there and vehicle owners out there right now is still extremely small. I mean we're talking you know still barely two percent of vehicles are sold in the U.S. are plug-ins. You know that's going to grow, but out of the total vehicle fleet of roughly ninety two hundred ninety million vehicles registered in the U.S., I mean we've got about less than two million of those are plug-in vehicles. So we're just getting started. By the time that there's we start to see a critical mass of EVs on the road, hopefully we will have worked through some of these issues and, and started to resolve them and, and get uh, get some alignment across uh, the different stakeholders.
1: There's so many issues that we can talk on here, but I want to go back to batteries for a minute, too. And uh, Jennifer, th- there's got to be intellectual property issues surrounding battery design as automakers work with suppliers and vice versa, and those suppliers work with yet other automakers, too. I got to believe that you're looking forward to litigating this as well. Uh,
0: Intellectual property is a perennial issue, and, and I think this is, you know, even more so Um, With some of these technologies and the fact that that the companies developing them are really not necessarily your traditional, I mean, they're not your traditional widget suppliers, right? You know, we have a lot of interesting formulation. There's a lot of chemistry involved to a degree. There's a lot of kind of um, connectivity issues involved. So you have a, a novel set of areas of patent law that you're dealing with when people actually get Uh, Intellectual property protections in this area. And it's not just the patentable things. It's also um, there's also a reliance to a degree on certain code programming and kind of the integration of the whole vehicle itself. So that's just an area that is exploding. And I'll, I'll give you a kind of an anecdote that I've heard recently, John. Um, a lot of the um, automakers are changing their terms and conditions, not only with respect to um, intellectual property, but also, also with respect to software. Um, there are some that really never even had terms and conditions dealing with the software aspect. So any of the control mechanisms, they were lightly protected. So I think from that standpoint, you now have a host of new opportunities um, to challenge because those software uh, intellectual property provisions are to a degree far more draconian than just simply, you know, who owns the flywheel or who owns the fastener patent. It's, it's going to be a nice, big, complex area. And I, I think you're right. I hate looking for legal, you know, legal ghosts under, under every rock, but this is going to be an area that could potentially be rife with challenge.
1: Wow, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that they were turning their changing their terms and conditions with the contracts that they make uh, suppliers sign. Very interesting, when it comes to software, that is.
2: Hey, John, yeah. just, to, just to follow up on that quickly, you know, and I think this may be part of the reason why we've been seeing a lot of automakers uh, over the past year or so really shift towards bringing more of the so- the control of the software in-house. Instead, for, for a long time, they've been relying on suppliers to provide little bits and pieces of software for each feature that they supply. But now we're seeing a shift towards taking more control doing more of that software internally and integrating that software maybe getting some pieces from suppliers but but take, you know having overall management of that in house so that the OEM knows what's in there and they they can perhaps deal with some of these issues and you know make sure that they're covered when something goes wrong
1: that's very interesting because publicly at least they've been saying they want more control because we're going to a software defined car and the like but you guys are saying it's also got uh uh this ip protection behind it as well this move that in the new terms and conditions
0: yeah absolutely i mean it's the, the software terms themselves i mean a lot of the oems who do have pre-existing software terms they're 20 page documents just to start with as a base template um, so for those who really haven't had anything in place, there's just a, a host of information that they're putting into their terms and conditions now. And intellectual property is really one of them. And, and you know, not just actually who, who invented the code, but it's also protecting against code that's used, whether it's open source material and particularly that terminology you may have heard before of copyleft. Um, Making sure that when you have a a piece of code in there, that there are no downstream requirements, that you have to share it back with the rest of the world if it's open source. So um, that's why, as Sam says, bringing it back in gives uh, an OEM a, a good modicum of control to make sure that they know what's in there and what rights they have and what rights are being granted.
1: Well, I know we've barely scratched the surface here of all the different legal issues that are going to arise with electric cars, the batteries that go in them, the software that defines them, uh, the the charging stations, the the fight between the retailers and the electric utilities. (laughs) I really uh, like the fact that you guys covered so much in uh, such a short amount of time here. I know there's a lot more that we're going to have to get into on a, on another show, but Jennifer Dukarski from Butzel Long, Sam Abilsamid from Guidehouse Insights, thank you for your information today.
2: Thank you, John. Thanks for having us.
1: And of course, I want to thank all of you for having tuned in.
0: Autoline This Week partnered with the Consulate General of Canada in Detroit to produce this episode.